Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Eloise Gibson is New Zealand's first reporter to be appointed climate change editor in a mainstream media outlet. The award-winning business journalist joined Stuff.co.nz earlier this year and was pleasantly surprised by the warm reception from the science and the business community. But did readers do the same? I spoke to Eloise about her fans and critics, about Stuff's commitment to science and keeping her spirits up on the front line of climate news. Eloise, thank you for joining us on This Climate Business. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, your role as the editor of uh, Climate Change at Stuff, is that, would I be right in thinking that you are the first editor of a climate change beat in New Zealand? Kind of. So Carbon News has been going for a while, um, which is, you know, a, a specialist publication just for climate change. But I think I'm probably the first editor at a big publication. So, you know, overseas, the New York Times has had a climate desk for a while. Uh, the Guardian, obviously, has had a strong climate team for a while. But I'm certainly the first at a big outlet in New Zealand that I know of. And we're a team of two. So I have Olivia uh, Wannan as well, a climate reporter. So it's pretty luxurious, actually, from a climate reporting perspective. Well, tell us about the journey to get there. Why did uh, Stuff want to have a climate change editor? So this predates me. I can take no credit for the decision. But about a year before I started there, my now boss, Patrick Crudson, who's the editor-in-chief of Stuff, had launched something called Quick Save the Planet. Mm-hmm. And that was a you know climate-focused specialist section on the Stuff homepage with a bunch of reporting. But he was essentially relying on drawing people from other newsrooms. So... You know, stuff has a lot of regional newspapers, people from around the regions, people from the business section, uh, even home and lifestyle, but he didn't have a dedicated team. So after about a year, they decided that they needed actual staff and that they were in a position to hire actual staff to do that beat full time. And that was kind of the the stepping up, I guess, of the project, which they've now rebranded. It's called the Forever Project now. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, what was the reaction when you were first announced as a climate editor? Was there uh, rapturous applause? Was there criticism? Did it uh, Was it crickets? So the, the reaction that I personally saw, and I'm probably in a Twitter bubble like we all are, was incredibly positive. Um, positive that the job existed, and mm. that's how I felt as well. You know, one of the reasons I... I to take the job is that I was just so happy that they were making this job, that it existed. And so a lot of kudos to stuff for making the job happen and investing and, you know, paying full-time staff. Uh, Lots of nice, you know, feedback to me for taking it. Um, I'm sure out there there was muttering as well, but I don't know, maybe I've got those people muted. Not much of it reached me. A fair amount of, you know. What do you mean, because of you personally or because of the issue? 
I don't think. What have you what? done that you never been know. telling us about? Hopefully not because of me personally. Um, as far as I know, I've never done anything too terrible. But you know, climate change. There's still a vocal group of deniers out there, and I did get a lot of um, not a lot, but a noticeable portion of reaction, which was kind of, well, you're a science journalist. Um, and I kind of say it in a nice way, you know, we respect you as a science journalist. So now <laughs> finally is stuff going to tell the other side of the story and, you know, reveal the truth that human-made climate change is not real. So there was a certain amount of that as well. Um, but right. generally, I was thrilled. I was really happy with how people reacted. I mean, do you get the sense that um, the denial movement is in decline? Yeah. I mean, it sounds harsh to say it, but I think it's ageing out. <laughs> um you know, we, we just ran um, some market research that was done by a, a climate advocacy group where they got a market research company to, you know, do one of those panel surveys of a couple mm. of thousand, you know, representative New Zealanders. And the hardcore, you know, people who really truly believe that it is not real were quite small. It was about 6% of the population, but greatly overrepresented in baby boomer men in particular um, and older. So I do think that as the cohorts who are more concerned about climate change and keener on climate action move into more powerful roles politically and in business, you know, company boards and things like that, I think we're starting to see some of that effect filter through. Mm. And I think that will, that will only increase, you know, as time goes on. Do you have your own view about why baby boom men struggle with climate change? Yeah. Columns, inches, books have been written about this. <laughs> I know there have been. There's one, there's one interesting there have been. theory in the, in the States, um, and that is that it's the element of social control that's associated with the solutions. And I do find that a bit of a persuasive theory. I do think there's a group out there that fear that the solutions to climate change will involve increased state interference and control in the economy and in people's mm. lives. Um, so I think some of the pushback comes again, you know, from that quarter. I think there's some just straight out contrarianism. You know, there are people who think that COVID is not a big deal. There are people who think that 5G causes COVID. You know, there are people there is going to be a subset of people who are going to do what they see as kicking against the man on whatever the majority view is. And I think there's mm. an element of that too. Um, don't know about the man thing. Um, <laughs> you'll you, it's interesting. You, you haven't found that in your role. I expected you to say that you have an in-tray full of hate mail and um, that you have to deal with the, the knockers and the deniers on a daily basis, but it doesn't. Sound like it. Sounds like you really. are working. So actually, even the e even the denier email, if I could call it that, it's pretty civil, most of it. I get a few abusive emails and they get deleted on site. But actually, um, some of them are asking genuine questions like, mm. can you explain X? Can you point me to some evidence for X? And I'll always reply to those people. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to end up in a, you know, a day long, spending half your day in a conversation with somebody who probably doesn't want 
to believe the evidence or read the evidence. <laughs> but actually, the, you know, the, I get a lot of email, but the vast majority of it is pretty civil. When you look at the New Zealand environment, we uh, have, in terms of emission profile, a, a really unusual one in that half of our emissions come from agriculture, right? And mm. and so we have a very difficult challenge ahead because our economy is built off the back of the land and yet it's the land, it's farming in the land that's causing the bulk of our emissions. When in you, As you survey the solutions and you talk to people around the traps, are there solutions emerging to that conundrum? There are. Uh, I don't think that the magic, enormous reduction in methane burping, for example, has come to fruition yet. But there's an enormous amount of research going into this. And, you know, New Zealand was one of the first countries in the world to really pour millions of dollars into blue sky research on things like methane inhibitors, nitrification inhibitors for nitrous oxide. Um, and certainly when you talk to agricultural climate researchers in countries like the United States and Canada, they're incredibly jealous that there is a solid, reliable, you know, stream of funding for this work because they don't have that there. Right. I mean, yeah. they struggle to even get a consistent run of administration to believe in climate change in those countries. So, mm. you know, getting the money to look at something like that is is very, very hard to do. Um, we what's have your, to subs- I was just what's say, your view on the on you know the on the hopefulness of those methane inhibitors? I I think the vaccine is a moonshot. That would be fantastic, but the scientists themselves who are looking at that still say it's a moonshot. They say, mm. you know, look at look at COVID. You know, it's not easy to come up with a vaccine, even when the whole world is trying to do it. Let alone when it's a you know a small but talented group of scientists in Palmerston North. Um, they are trying to vaccine not even the animal. They're trying to vaccine a microbe, vaccinate a microbe that lives inside the animal. So it's, <laughs> incredibly, yeah. it's incredibly complex what they're trying to do. I don't know. I mean, they put it at about fifty-fifty. So I would I would go with that. I mean, I, that, perhaps that's generous. Um, but I think we'll get something else. I mean, we'll certainly get a methane inhibitor that can be fed to the animal. The mm-hmm. issue, and those already exist, um, the, the problem we're having, of course, is that in our grazing system, cows don't just chow down out of buckets twice a day. So they're not getting that regular sustained dose that you could get in a North American feedlot, for example. Um, so I think that will come. It's just at the moment they're trying to get around the issues of how do you feed it. You put a bolus down their throat, or you know, what do you do? But that doesn't seem insurmountable. So I'm sure we'll get something diet-based that will help. And of course, you've got the other end of the cow, the uh, the urine end, where they're you know putting nitrogen onto paddocks and these con- concentrated patches, and that's sending out all of this nitrous oxide. And that has been the subject of some pretty successful research. I think, do you remember? Um, Years ago, they had that nitrification inhibitor fertilizer that went on mm. the paddock, DCD, mm. and it mm. all went pear-shaped because traces of it showed up in milk and it wasn't an approved substance. So they'll certainly get things like that, um, very similar to that. They just need to go through the you know, the food safety clearance and export standard process to make it actually work. So all of that is quite 
promising. I think the bigger question is going to be, do we continue to farm the same way? Do we farm as intensively as we are today? So there's bigger picture research looking at things like, can you make the same amount of money with fewer cows? Can you make Mm. the same amount of money by doing some cropping, doing some forestry and having cows or sheep? Those, to me, are the kind of bigger picture solutions. Are there some parts of the country where actually farming is not profitable, not sustainable? Mm. And people, you know, people in rural areas find those conversations painful to even mm. think about. So, yeah, I think I think it will be a mixture of all of those things that will ultimately come through. When you're out and about in the rural communities, what's the appetite for talking about climate change and emissions reductions? So I have a lot of dairy farmer family members, <laughs> it would be fair to say that it gets lumped in with a whole lot of other things, water quality, um, you know, just a general feeling of being under siege. You know, I think mm-hmm. there is a real kind of resentment and anxiety, a lot of anxiety in the rural sector, at least from the people that I talk to. But I do see and hear from and maybe it's because of my job, you know, I'm probably not getting a totally representative selection of farmers talking to me, but the ones that I talk to for work, certainly there are a lot of young farmers coming through who really want to do things differently. They want to Mm. stay on the land, they want to farm, but they accept that they're having an impact and they want to do something about it, and so the will to change is absolutely there. Mm, That's Um, terrific to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, there is still that, that huge segment that doesn't feel that way. Um, but again, I think there'll be a generational shift. It's hard to know. What are the other issues that come across your desk, you know, that are, you think are really burning issues for New Zealand regarding climate change? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that today because we've just put our magazine to bed, the Forever Project. Oh, yes, tell magazine. us about that, the Forever Project. <laughs> it's us. <laughs> Second ever uh, edition of this magazine, which comes out in the Christchurch Press, the Waikato Times, the Sunday Star Times, and the Dominion Post. And I had virtually nothing to do with the first one. It was great, but it had nothing to do with me. It came out when I was still very fresh in the job. And this one has been all about the COVID recovery. Um, And I think that that is the big story in climate at the moment because we are spending billions of dollars to bounce back from this economic shock. We will only get this money once. Once it is spent, we're going to be in debt. And so there is a very kind of urgent sense from the people I talk to that if we stuff this up, it's over in terms of meeting our emissions targets. And also in terms of, well, because... You know, we've got 10 years, for example, to meet our 2030 goals. So what we signed up to under the Paris Agreement was to get our emissions down um, by a, a substantial amount in excess of 10 million tonnes a year. A lot of people would say that target wasn't adequate and the Climate Change Commission is going to review it next year. But even to meet that target is a big ask and it's an average target. So we're currently tracking way too high. And it's not enough to be where we need to be on average at the end of the decade. The average mean, needs to uh, come out right. Do you mean where our emissions are tracking too high or our reductions are tracking too high? Because that, that would be fantastic. If that, <laughs> Unfort- unfortunately, I mean that our emissions are tracking <laughs> too high. And so, of course, to meet the average, we need to be below 
the average, yeah. well below the average by the right. And every year to make gets up harder. for the fact that we're overshooting at the moment. And exactly yeah. every year it gets harder. And you know, in this decade that we are in right now, there is not going to be another chance to spend billions of dollars on rail, billions of dollars on cycling, billions of dollars on cleaning up coal-fired boilers, billions of dollars on changing the tourism industry or investing in new ways of farming. This really is only going to happen once, once. because I, we are just, you know, I don't know, do you see the government having appetite to borrow a whole lot more money in five years' time? <laughs> There's uh, an expression about locking in uh, whatever infrastructure we build, we're going to be locking in our emissions depending on what technology or the type of investments we make, right? Um, and you mentioned um, some of those in transport. Um, what have you discovered in your uh, – well, tell us about what's in the magazine. I assume you, you talk about transport, for instance. We've talked about transport a lot. I was surprised, actually, when I looked over. So I did a big feature on transport, but um, – so a lot of the, the cool new companies that we've featured are transport-focused as well. And I'm glad that we did because when you think about the levers that we can pull, agriculture is not in the emissions trading scheme and won't be until at least halfway through this period from 2020 to 2030. Uh, industrial emitters are in, but they have a lot of free allocations under the emissions trading scheme. So not all industrial emitters, but the, the trade-exposed ones. So... You're left with some quite, you know, only a portion of the economy that can really mm. be moved, and transport is certainly one of those, and it's one we should move. So, what the starting point that I came from was what did we learn during lockdown that might shift people's perceptions of changing their modes of transport? Because there is this idea that we're a, a culture of car lovers, that we love to drive, that we'll never cycle. And in fact, it turned out that when it was safe to do so, when we were in mm. low traffic environment, um, also we kind of had no choice, right? It was the only way we could get out of the house. We were pretty keen. We were keen to use the roads to bike on. We were keen mm. to run, to walk, to use that space. And of course, the problem we've had when we've returned to normal life, returned to the office, been allowed to travel and go where we want again, is that we didn't really have the infrastructure to keep that going. We didn't really yeah. have safe cycle lanes you know from my house there's an amazing cycle route to the city that starts about 15 minutes away from my house but I can't get there without driving really safely um I certainly wouldn't put my kids on a bike there so I think that has brought home to people that maybe even if they want to make these choices they don't have the options at the moment and mm. certainly you know the city rail link is going ahead which is fantastic we may or may not get light rail in Auckland but when you look at the modelling of what is required to get our transport emissions where they need to be, none of those things are enough, even close to enough, even what? with reasonably rapid electric vehicle uptake. Right. What is required? So I spoke to a variety of researchers about this, and it would be fair to say everyone's got their own ideas. Some people think EVs are a big part of the solution. Some people think they're a waste of time because they take you know, emissions to manufacture and, and they kind of distract from putting money into the public transport and the, the walking and cycling that we need. But there's pretty general consensus that we need heaps more of all of those things. So More of everything. More of everything and then electrify what's left. So electrify the cars that are left, uh, maybe 
shuttles coming around, picking people up to take them to public transport hubs so that people can get there kind of quickly and dry and not be waiting for the bus that only comes once an hour to take them to the train. Because as soon as you set up hurdles like that, people are just not going to do it if they have the option of driving. Um, Some people very keen on congestion charging, others not so much. There is a real fear among really all of the researchers I talk to about the equality side of this. So, you know, typically people who live further out of the city are less well served by public transport already, uh, less well served by, you know, active transport options, and they have older, gas guzzlier cars. And so as carbon prices go up and the levers really start to come on to try and push people to use more sustainable modes of transport, there's a fear that those people are going to get penalised the hardest. Mm. Um, mm which would be a real shame. So, yeah, more of everything and faster. That's the other thing. I think that transport authorities are aware of what needs to happen, but the pace of change is very slow. There's a lot of each little thing that happens has years of consultation, years of legal challenges, and it's happening a little bit at a time, a little bit over here, a little bit over there, and not this kind of big strategic national direction that is probably required. Even now, you know, with a government that is is seemingly very concerned about climate change. Mm. Uh, I'm curious. I listened once to a BBC uh, documentary about reporters, uh, environmental reporters, and scientists who spend their time at the coal face of climate change or of uh, saving species or conservation or whatever. Um, and the psychological impact on those people was quite profound because the news was consistently bad. <laughs> Um, you know, they were constantly surrounded by um, decline in habitat, decline in species, changing habitat, uh, rising temperatures, or, you know, whatever field they were in, the news was always bad. Tell us about the psychology of your round. Uh, uh, is is it a bad news environment? And, and if it is, what? how do you cope with that? It is... Uh, overwhelmingly a bad news environment. I don't know many people who spend all of their time either researching or, excuse me, writing about climate change who don't feel probably on balance pessimistic (laughs) about the way things are going. Uh, But there are signs of hope and I do see, I see more change happening in the last few years than I've ever seen, you know, in my time covering this topic. And so that's incredibly hopeful. There are lots of really good people doing awesome things. So the more time you can spend talking to them, the better. But I think also you just need to have a break from thinking about it. I mean, I feel a lot more upbeat about life when I'm not thinking about climate change. <laughs> I think about the, the wonderful things about living in New Zealand and the, you know, the wonderful things that I have in my life. Um, focusing on them is a much more upbeat experience than thinking about this gargantuan thing that we're trying to deal with. I mean, therein lies part of the communications challenge, right? We are dealing with something that is just consistently depressing. And um, is there something in uh, a more, I don't know, looking to technology or looking to change as a hopeful thing rather than uh, run sort of you know, the sort of consistently kind of depressing stuff about how the world is changing for the worse. Uh, is there an upside to climate change? I'm, I'm thinking, 
I don't know what it could be. It might be grapes in Invercargill or uh, it, it might be um, much quieter, cleaner atmosphere and, and streets. You know, is, is there a more hopeful version of the future that you could, as a communicator, uh, be deploying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a real risk that a lot of climate communication and communication about the solutions is kind of deprivation-based. Mm. You know, we talk a lot about things we have to give up and not enough about the things that would be great. And we should point out that you've valiantly joined us after do it slaving in the office to produce this magazine and now have a head cold. So we, we appreciate you, the time that you're putting into um, to joining us, Eloise. Such is my dedication to climate communication. Um, <laughs> exactly. Look, I think, I think it's a balance. I think people want to know that there's hope. They want to know that there's solutions. They want to know that life in the future is not going to be crap, you know, mm, <laughs> that mm. if we solve this, it's actually going to be pretty awesome. And, and I think it could be awesome. You know, one of the motivations with this podcast is I want to interview people who can articulate a better future, not not just um, kind of mitigating the bad things that are happening, but actually you think about, um, you know, imagine if we got rid of pollution out of our life, if, if air pollution was removed from our major cities, how, That'd be kind of a good thing, wouldn't it? It'd be good for the environment, be good for us. Well, wasn't lockdown lovely? I mean, not everything about lockdown was lovely by any stretch, but that part of it was quite eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people. Mm. So it's one thing to look at the graphs. That's another to live it, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. So um, what do you think is going to be happening? Um, it, it, tell us about the, the future, I suppose, of climate reporting and... Um, and your magazine, I, I noticed, for instance, that it's sponsored by the warehouse, which is great. So um, you're getting great support. How hopeful are you about the um, commitment by staff to continue with the climate change reporting? And well done, by the way, on uh, having a new owner. How exciting is that? So it does feel now like we have a bit more freedom to determine our own destiny. And certainly, you know, Sinead Boucher and my boss, Patrick Crudson, have been incredibly supportive of the climate coverage that we've been doing. So mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful uh, now that the future of our coverage is is strong. Um, I don't think anyone in media probably feels 100% safe in their jobs. Um, <laughs> I, don't, <coughs> I don't think that would be a, you know, a sensible outlook to have in the current environment. But I do feel like we can do good stuff and like I've got strong support from above to keep doing that. So we're pretty lucky. Fantastic. And how are you personally, uh, apart from having a, a, a terrible <laughs> head cold, how, how do you feel about um, the future? You know, is there a, a hopeful <laughs> element to what you're doing? I, I am picking up from you that there is a strain of excitement about what kind of a green future we could have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see lots of small businesses, lots of big businesses, lots of grassroots organisations, politicians increasingly from both sides of the aisle uh, really trying to move on this and everyone has a different idea about how to do it and I think that's really good because I think yeah. that, that you know, it takes it away from being, in the past it's kind of been this left-right thing, you know. Yes. Climate change was something for greenies and it was something for people who didn't care about the economy and I think that that myth is starting to be busted now. And we're mm. starting to get really strong views from all political groups 
about how the future should look and how we should combat this. Um, and I think that is good um, and will ultimately improve the, you know, the future. I guess I was thinking today about, you know, we featured some lovely companies in the magazine. There's one, Big Street Bikers, who are putting um, e-bike locking stations and rechargeries around the country. Uh, there's a <clears throat> carbon neutral car hire company called Zilch. Lots of entrepreneurial type things happening, which makes me feel good. But when I think about the big picture, I think what is happening now that really matters are things like ACC announcing yesterday that they are going to decarbonise their investment portfolio at a rapid mm -hmm. rate. Um, mm. The New Zealand Super Fund has also been pretty hot on that. And I know there are people who would like to see it happen quicker. But the fact that that is happening and this, you know, the kind of structural decisions that the government can make to do things like cap emissions, which it's done for next year for the first time, those things haven't happened before. And again, I think the science would say these things all need to happen quicker. But, you know, although these, these hot entrepreneurial companies are a bit more sexy, it's probably actually ACC making some very dry decisions in its boardroom that are going to have the bigger impact on mm. what happens over the next 10 years. And it's, so it's encouraging to see that happen. Um, and I think we will see that filter out to the banks and others, um, which makes me feel hopeful in a way that I probably didn't feel, you know, 10 years ago when I first started covering this stuff. Yeah, great. Eloise, if we want to find your writing uh, and video work that um, you produce on a daily basis, where can we find you? Uh, I am on stuff.co.nz under a little banner called Climate Change on the homepage. Excellent. And every so often you uh, your story actually hits the front page, if there is a front page anymore online. But, yeah, it's great to see. Hey, Eloise, um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, do um, uh, get over your cold. And uh, and all the best for uh, the reporting. It's, it's great to see. Thanks a lot, Vincent. Welcome to This Climate Business the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This climate business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.